Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. J.R.R. Tolkien is going to end his essay on fairy stories by introducing a new term to express a concept or reality that he wants to signal as being absolutely central to good fairy stories. And that is eucatastrophe. And eu, if you know anything about ancient Greek, means well or good. Catastrophe, I think we all know what that means. And he's going to contrast this against a douce catastrophe, right? So a catastrophe, we usually think of that as a negative thing. But in fact, it could come in good or bad, well or ill variants, right? Or we could say modalities. So he's talking about consolation and he will tell us in the end of this section that the consolation of fairy tales has another aspect than the imaginative satisfaction of ancient or what he's called earlier primordial desires. Far more important, he tells us, is the consolation of the happy ending. Now, we should pause here for a moment because perhaps we become a bit jaded, particularly if we're fantasy fans or speculative fiction fans. Oh, happy endings, that's for people who can't handle reality and grimdark and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't mean a happy ending like some Pollyannish and then everything turned out okay in the end kind of nonsense. He means something much deeper than that. So he says, almost I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function, but the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we don't appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is, as he says, the true form of fairy tale. And now notice this, it's highest function. So a fairy tale has many, many functions, but its highest function, when we actually look at it, is this thing that up until this point didn't have a name, but we understood in sense. So he goes on and he says a couple things about this. The joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things that fairy tales can produce supremely well, is not, as he's going to say, essentially escapist, or to use another word, fugitive, right? It's not about fleeing from things. So what is it about? He says that in its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. So when we think about what this term grace means, right? We have a lot of different senses to it. We sometimes think of, you know, a dancer as being graceful in their movements. And that's one sense. But the older sense, gratia, you know, coming from Latin haris in, in Greek, is that of a divine gift that is given without any sort of prediction or compelling. It's just gratuitously, that's coming from the word grace, given to a person. And that's what happens in the story, right? So he says, this is what produces for us the joy 
This joy is going to come from this glimpse of something. So he says, a fairy tale doesn't deny the existence of deuce catastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies universal final defeat. And insofar as it is evangelium, evangelium is the word for, in Latin, for gospel. And what does evangelium or gospel actually mean? Good news. <laughs> That's literally what gospel and evangelium, evangelium is actually a Latin word that is just transliterating the, the Greek word, good tidings, good announcements, right? And it gives us, as he says, a fleeting glimpse of joy, not a guaranteed joy. Every time that you read the fairy tale, you won't automatically get that, right? It's not a mechanism. It's an opening to something greater. So he says that joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief and sometimes mixed with it. I know that for myself, speaking personally, when I see a successful resolution like that through all the sorrow and pain and conflict and sacrifices, it sometimes brings me to tears even in my happiness. I know that was the case for me at the very end of The Lord of the Rings as a child trying to communicate that to my mom, why I was so upset at the good ending of the book. So he says that it's the mark of a good fairy story or of the higher or complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to the child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. What a wonderful phenomenological description of what goes on when we sense, when we grasp this turning, right? So this is quite important. He says also, even modern fairy stories can produce this effect sometimes. It's not easy to do. It depends on the whole story, which is the setting of the turn, and yet reflects a glory backwards. A tale that in any measure succeeds in this point has not wholly failed. Whatever flaws it may possess, and whatever mixture or confusion of purpose, it even happens in Andrew Lang's, Andrew Lang is the person that Tolkien is kind of beating up in this essay, owns fairy story, Prince Prigio, unsatisfactory in many ways as that is. And so he says, far more powerful and poignant is the effect in a serious tale of fairy. In such stories, when the sudden turn comes, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of story, and lets a gleam come through. So what he's telling us about here is that within certain stories, the effect of it is to take us not just into the story, but outside of it to a certain extent. And that there's a emotional reaction that occurs, a, a rightful emotional reaction. Now he writes an epilogue. <laughs> Interestingly, he says, this joy, which I have selected as the mark of the true fairy story, or as the seal upon it, merits more consideration. So he's going to give us some very interesting more consideration. The first thing that I think is really important here, he talks about sub-creators. He says, probably every writer making a secondary world, a fantasy, every sub-creator wishes in some measure to be a real maker or hopes that he is drawing on reality, hopes that the peculiar quality of this secondary world, if not all the details, are derived from reality or are flowing into it. If he achieves a quality that can fairly be described by the dictionary definition, inner consistency of reality, it is difficult to conceive how this can be if the work does not in some way partake of reality. And we could say, well, what about cynical creators? You know, for example, J.G. Ballard writing a novel just to get it out there and make some money or something like that early on. Well, there's a sort of sadness 
awareness that goes with that, isn't there? Of, oh, I didn't bring it off. One can have this in negatively, but sub creators do wish to be real makers and their hopes, as he says, draw upon reality. Now, this is something that he said earlier about secondary worlds and sub creation, drawing on the primary world. You can't get away from it entirely, even with nonsense things like Alice in Wonderland. So he goes on and he says that the peculiar quality of the joy in successful fantasy can thus be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. The underlying reality or truth to what? To the story? No, not just to the story, to the primary world that we inhabit and which itself may not be as primary a reality as we often take it to be when we close it off. So he goes on and he says, this is not only a consolation for the sorrow of this world, which would be the case if it was just escapist, right? Consolation is important, but it's also a satisfaction. That's important as well. And it's also an answer to the question, is it true? The answer to this question that I gave at first was quite rightly, and he's talking here about secondary creation. If you've built your little world, well, yes, it is true in that world, in the secondary world. That's enough for the artist or the artist part of the artist. But going beyond this, in the U catastrophe, we see in a brief vision that the answer may be greater. The answer to the question, is it true? Yes, it is true in the secondary world. Yes, it is true in a different sense. True, not in totality, you could say, because it gives us a glimpse rather than giving us an entirely coherent secondary world. He says it may be a far off gleam or echo of, now, now notice what he says, evangelium in the real world. So he doesn't say it may be a far off gleam or echo of the real world. It may be a far off gleam or echo of evangelium in the real world. And he says, the use of this word gives a hint of my epilogue. It's a serious and dangerous matter. It is incredibly important, right? Then he's going to bring up the Christian story. And it's entirely understandable that Tolkien would bring this up. You know, he is a practicing Roman Catholic that plays a big role in his work, but he's not writing this from, you could say, an exclusionary perspective where he's saying, oh, only the Christian story is good and only this version of it is good. As a matter of fact, what he's saying here could be extended to other religious narratives as well, I think. And so he's going to tell us that the Christian story, he would say, I venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it's long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures, men, in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. And then notice what he says. He doesn't say all of the Bible. He says the Gospels. Evangelium, right? He doesn't say Paul's letters and theology. He sure as hell doesn't say the book of Revelations, right? Which would actually be kind of antithetical to this. So he says the gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. Why? They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe, at least in, in Tolkien's view, right? So what is this going to be? He tells us the story has entered history in the primary world. This is the desire and aspiration of subcreation, and it's been raised to the level of creation. 
not just being in the primary world or making things in the primary world, like, you know, chalkboard or shooting a video or something like that, and not just sub-creation, creating your own, however difficult this may be, secondary world that can compel secondary belief, provide this, but something greater, right? The creation of the primary world and the primary world in which all these narratives become possible. So he highlights several aspects of this. He talks about birth. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. If you actually read the gospel narratives, it's not like, you know, the away in a manger, your little crush and stuff like that. This is a harrowing story. Soon after the Christ child is born and the Magi come and all that sort of stuff, Herod tries to kill him, right? The family has to flee as refugees into Egypt. It couldn't have been fun bringing a baby to birth in some animal crap infested manger, right? We go on and on and on. When you actually read these narratives, it's really quite different than the sanitized versions that we often get presented with. So birth, and then he talks about the resurrection as the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. And I would also say of the sacrifice and death. This story begins and ends in joy. He says it has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. And so, you know, Tolkien takes this as sort of paradigmatic of the EU catastrophe. But we might, you know, ask ourselves, can other religious perspectives supply narratives that are similarly offering us a glimpse into something joyful, something beyond even this primary world? Then he goes on and he says something really interesting. And this is, I think he, he says, he wants to say is applying to the Christian narrative, but it's, it's a broader scope. It is not difficult to imagine the peculiar excitement and joy one would feel if any specially beautiful fairy story were found to be primarily true. A story about the real world, its narrative to be history without thereby necessarily losing the mythical or allegorical significance it had possessed. So excitement and joy would be resulting from this, finding something true. He says the joy would have exactly the same quality, if not in the same degree, as the joy which the turn in a fairy story gives. Such joy has the very taste of primary truth. Otherwise, its name, he says, would not be joy. It looks forward or backward to the great eucatastrophe. And he says the Christian joy, the glory is of the same kind, but it is preeminently high and joyous, right? Interestingly, he says another thing, too, about the great and the small. So he says, in God's kingdom, the presence of the greatest does not depress the small. This is part of what is distinctive about God's kingdom. And you might even say this is an index by which we can judge whether people who are talking about God's kingdom are actually full of crap or just trying to get over something on us or are deluded or whether they're actually in touch with it. The great does not negate the small. As a matter of fact, it helps the small to be the small. Like he says, redeemed human being is still human being. Story fantasy still go on and should go on. The evangelium has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, made them holy, especially the happy ending. The Christian still has to work with mind as well as body, suffer, hope, and die. But he may now perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose which can be redeemed. And this, as he says, this is a bounty that he's been treated to. He may now fairly dare to guess that in fantasy, he may actually assist in the affiliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true, and yet at the last, redeemed. They may be as like and unlike as the forms we give them as man. Finally redeemed will be like and unlike the fallen that we know. So very interestingly here, once again, buying into the Gospels, believing in Christianity, practicing, doesn't rule out other stories. 
As a matter of fact, as Tolkien says, it hallows them, right? And we might think to bring this to a conclusion about Tolkien's own work as a sub-creator, not just in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but think about the Cimmerillion and the story of creation that goes on there and all of the things that happen in the first and second age of Middle-earth. Or think about his other works as well that stand on their own, like Farmer Giles of Ham and Leaf by Niggle, about the artist, right? All of these are, in Tolkien's view, exemplifications of what he is discussing here, this eucatastrophe and the evangelium and the joy that is produced both in generating it, participating in subcreation, and in our own engagement of it as readers. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.